Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome back to episode 309 of Sexology podcast. Before I dive into the episode today, I wanted to take a moment and thank every single one of you guys who posted about the Iranian revolution in your social media. Now we are into the third month of this uprising and it is just so painful to see that brave women of Iran are fighting for their basic freedoms and they're doing this courageous act of burning their headscarves, going to school, protesting with not wearing mandatory hijab. And what's very unfortunate is that Islamic Republic of Iran's propaganda is trying to limits the voices of these people inside the Iran. So the internet in Iran is sanctioned. So it's very difficult for people to send Iranians, Iranian-Americans, journalists, the videos outside the Iran. And when we are posting those videos, the government of Iran has a subcategory of their military. They're reporting accounts. They're shadow banding it. So they know who we are as Iranian-Americans. So they can attack us. But when you as a non-Iranian American promoting that content, it will help us to reach a broader audience. And Iranian women, they don't want people to come save them. They just want to be able to be heard. They know the government knows that when their thousands and millions of people are observing them, they're not going to do mass genocide on their people because of the fear of the consequences. But as soon as they figure out that there are not many people watching, that's the time that they will do the worst cruel killings that they often do when when things are, the attention, international attention is dying down. So again, if you haven't heard about Iran's uprising, please Google it, read CNN writes about it, Guardian writes about it, and post about it. It means a lot to us as Iranians and Iranian-American Iranians around the globe. So in today's conversation, and a more positive note, we're going to talk about how you can bring back passion in the relationship. We're going to give you tools and tips and tricks if you have been in a long-term relationship and you feel that your sex life is not on the right track. Our guest today is Yana Talon-Hicks, licensed marriage family therapist. She is a couples and relationship therapist and a consent sex and sexuality writer an educator living in Western Massachusetts. Her book, Hot and Unbothered, How to Think About, Talk About, and Have the Sex You Really Want is available wherever you buy books. You can connect with her on her social media, Instagram, and professionally on her website. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Yana Talon-Hicks. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Yana Talon-Hex on our show today. Yana, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. 
I am very excited about this conversation. You know, I really like your book. Definitely going to talk more about it. But what was interesting, it had this inclusive, much needed information. And I think that it had something for everyone to learn from it. So tell us, how did you interested in writing that book? Yeah, I mean, I have been writing a sex advice column for over 10 years. And I started teaching sex education workshops sort of casually at a sex or a sex toy shop in my hometown. And it kind of just like morphed from there. I ended up getting my degree so I could be a therapist. And I feel like the kind of the two career tracks kind of just merged into this book lane. And I don't know, I kind of feel like I always knew I was going to write this book. It was just sort of a matter of when. But the short answer is I wanted to write this book because I grew up as a teenager in the early 2000s and did not have a lot of resources like this for myself. It was pre-Google, pre-social media. And I just always felt like it was important to try to fill in some of those gaps. Absolutely. And you know, I, in the book, you talk about how when you are asking people, where did they learn from sex, from about sex education? What are some of the things you learned? They say like, it's the sex education that we people get and it's not sufficient. And also most people learn about sex from porn that I know I, I said in the past that it's not sex education it's it can be entertaining engaging depending on what you're watching but it's not it's not informative it's not meant mm-hmm. to be educational so you talked about so many different things in the book one thing that was very interesting is about helping people to learn what they like we have lots of cisgender heterosexual clients in our practice. And also we have lots of listeners that they just don't know what they like. What mm. they see in porn is not resonating with them. And they just want to go on this journey of exploration. Like it's interesting that sometimes when they got my male clients tell me they don't know, sometimes it comes from them knowing and they're just like not comfortable talking about it. But, but with my cisgender clients or more from a cons- more from conservative background, they just don't know. So what are some of the recommendations you recommend for people that want to explore more about their sexual interests? Yeah, I mean, I think that's like very common in my practice as well, right? Where it's either like you mentioned, somebody does kind of have an idea of what they want to try, but they feel really scared asking their partner for that thing. And that's been influenced by like the societal perceptions of what that thing is, if it's sort of like deemed to be like, quote unquote, normal or not. And people try to like mind read their partners by being like, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't be into this. And you're like, well, did you ever ask them? And usually they haven't. So that's one lane is to work on getting braver with your asks and being less afraid of somebody telling you that they're not into that thing, if that's the case. And then another part is that I think like you're saying for a lot of women or queer people, they don't have a lot of permission or freedom to explore their sexuality in the same way that young boys tend to have, right? There's like this assumption that young men are going to explore sexually or like make sex jokes or like watch porn early, all these things. And I think other people aren't really given that same permission or freedom to sort of like adventure. My book in the, I think it's chapter seven, there's a yes, no, maybe list. And that's basically just an extensive menu of sex acts and certain things that set the tone for sex for people. And I think for some people, it can feel very distressing to not know what you want to ask for. And having things in a list form, you know, it's easier to choose something from a menu than it is to just like create it out of your head, especially if you were never given examples. 
So I think for some people it can be helpful just to like look at erotica or porn or talk to your friends about sex more and just like generate ideas. Because I also think eroticism is very surprising for people, right? Like, I don't know if you've seen that meme where someone's like scrolling through porn and they're like, oh, I'm not into that. And then they have to like double back to be like, oh, maybe I am into that. (laughs) So I think eroticism is like a little mysterious and can require us to sort of look around before we decide if we're into something or not. So many great points. When you were talking about cisgender women and queer women not having permission to kind of explore pleasure, something else that showed up for me is also the content that mainstream porn content is geared toward male, like a heterosexual cisgender male. I know it's been significant progress in that area with feminist-centered ethical porn, but still, like majority of porn that people are watching are just not what they're interested in. I know that as far as what's attractive for different people, like some people are into the context and some people are just through interested in the visual part of things. And I feel there's an overemphasis on the visual kind of like a portrayal of sexually explicit material, which is not necessarily what speaks to many women that I talk to in my practice. And I think it's very interesting that you're talking about the menus. I think menus are great way of people exploring things. And also you talk about it in the book that not everything that we see, we can like do DIY it at home. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. Because I know, for example, like uh, with Fifty Shades of Grey, of course, everyone that on the field, they know it's not an accurate portrayal of what mm-hmm. power exchange is supposed to look like, what consent would look like. But sometimes people say, oh, I like that. And let me do that at home. Mm-hmm. And they get disappointed on kind of like how the experience and scene unfolds. What are some of the recommendations you have for people that they are interested in kinkier things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think like you're saying, Fifty Shades of Grey didn't do us a lot of favors in like what a a consensual power exchange dynamic might look like. When you were talking, it kind of reminded me of like rope suspension has been having like a moment, you know, (laughs) like rope bondage is like getting more and more popular. And having been like part of the, or like a fringe member of the rope community, like I've seen the amount of work it takes for people that can safely suspend people from rope. That is a lot of work. (laughs) You need to know all these different like things about how to do all the knots. You need to know what's safe for people. You need to know how a body moves, what waiting is like, like how to secure something to the ceiling safely. You don't want to be like ripping down any pipes or like, (laughs) you know, hurting somebody. So I think there's a lot of fantasy elements there that, oh, this would be so sexy. And then people go to a rope class and they're like trying to tie a really basic thing and it's really hard. And they're like, oh my God, I'll never get from A to B. (laughs) But I think there are ways to explore that stuff in a way that is a little more like beginner or user friendly. So if you went to a sex toy shop, for example, a lot of them host like 101 classes about kink. There's a lot of 101 classes online now that you can watch like via webinars and certain sex toy shops will have like if you like the sensation of bondage you could get like a kit that's like a bondage kit but it isn't necessarily like you need to go learn how to suspend someone for like a million hours well as you said that i was like thinking back about my experience with hanging stuff (laughs) 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 when i hang a picture frame it falls (laughs) i can only imagine if i hang a person like a person how would that look like and again you're right that it doesn't need that like you cannot have that 
but you need some additional strategies or maybe I can get a kit that's already pre-made. I, I, I attended one of the bondage classes and they lost me at the first knot. <laughs> <Totally. laughs> so it requires some practicing yeah. and kind of getting better at it. But it's it's great for people, I always say, like to bring novelty and excitement into the relationship. And there's just a galaxy of classes online. Mm. How can people know that the person is teaching it? They're really qualified because anyone can put it online that like I'm teaching this. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to choose the right expert. Yeah, I think when it comes to kink stuff in particular, like when I think about going, I mean, this was, they're coming up more now, but pre-COVID, there were a lot of like in-person rope classes and events in my area. I live in a pretty liberal area. The nice thing about going to those classes, like I'm not going to learn how to suspend someone from the ceiling. I am just not technically minded in that way. Like you said, you lost me at the first knot. I don't want to try to do this. (laughs) But I do think the important element of those classes is the community. So you can kind of learn from the community, especially if you're doing in-person stuff within that community. If you live in a small town or a big city, the kink community tends to be pretty close knit. And so you'll learn like who might have a record of like consent violations or like just like shadier practices and how to like vet, it's called vetting, how to vet your partner and make sure that they're a safe person to do kink with because kink is risky. It's risky for people on the dominant side or the submissive side, but it can be especially risky for the submissive because you are in a way consensually like giving up power in a playful way. And so like, you know, if your hands are tied together, like you can't use your hands, you should be able to trust the person who's doing that. So I think like getting to know your community and not just picking somebody off of Tinder and going to their house for like a whole big kink scene is probably like a good first step. I also think like Google is your friend. So like if there's somebody that you get like a weird vibe off of or something, give them a quick Google, maybe you'll find something, see what their social media looks like, things like that. Well, you're right. There's so many different ways that we can gather information and see what's safe and not. And I think in reality, even if you have quote unquote vanilla sex, mm-hmm. there are certain level of risk always involved, but it's oh, important sure. to inform and kind of like kind of do the good assessment of what are, this is a best option for me and what are some of the tools I need in my toolbox. But kind of going back to people in long-term relationship, I know kind of like leftover sex, monotonous sex is one of the reasons that people lose interest and 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 having sex with their partner many people i work with they just they don't have low desire they're just not inspired to have mm-hmm. sex and i hear that many people struggle with ebbs and flows of desire in a long-term relationship how can we learn what might be the reason mm. yeah so i get a lot of and i don't know if you see this in your work i get a lot of couples that come in and they're like we haven't had sex in a long time or we're not having as much sex as we want to have And I feel like one of the assessment questions that I like to ask them is like, are you okay with the amount? Like, do you need to get, do we need to do work on you accepting that your sex life isn't the way you want it to be? Or do we need to do work on rebuilding your sex life and making it more appetizing and interesting? Because it's very natural that we're not going to want to have sex that isn't interesting to us, right? Like why it's similar with food, right? It's like, I'm not really going to be like, super pumped to eat this meal if it just doesn't sound good to me. So, and I think the same thing happens with sex. So like, I like to ask couples, like, what does your sexual routine look like? I feel like most long-term couples have some kind of a baseline routine where it's like, I go like this, you go like this, then we do this and then we're done. And that's across the board with all kinds of couples. And I think that baseline is good to have in your 
toolkit of sex, but it can't just be the only kind of sex you're having because you're going to get bored. So I think for those couples, like I like to assign a yes, no, maybe list so that they can have a little bit of a reboot and kind of break the ice around talking about creating something new. I also think it's helpful for couples who are in therapy. They have a therapist that's like assigning them time and space and permission to talk about their sex life, which I think is hard for couples to just give themselves on their own. And I also feel like a lot of the time as you start working together, you notice that like there's some other stuff going on, right? Like sex isn't just an island off the coast of your life. Sex is part of your life. So if there is like big unresolved conflicts or you don't feel like emotionally taken care of or there is uneven domestic labor happening or like strife with the kids or whatever, that's just going to trickle into your sex life. Because ultimately, I think a creative, fun sex life is really born out of a context that feels safe and like open to communication outside of the bedroom. So sometimes we have to do work on those elements first and then get to addressing the sex because it's not just going to be like, oh, if your relationship is super tense and fraught and then we just light some more candles and buy some new lingerie, that's not going to fix the situation because there's all this foundational stuff underneath it. I agree with you. Sometimes people kind of bicker all the day. They have this bitterness in the relationship. And when it comes to the kind of scheduled sex time, they they kind of have this expectation, the desire will show up and everything going to be great. So as you mentioned that what's happening in the bedroom for most couple, it's an extension of what you're feeling outside. I believe in the beginning, it might be slightly different as like all of those kind of like exciting novelty element is more present and you have this new relationship energy. But long term, I feel it's really, really important for people to kind of like make sure that at least the relational part is good enough if they want to have satisfactory, good enough sexual experiences. The other important part of it is that our bodies evolve and it changes. And I, I hear from many of my clients that they don't experience their body or their partner's body exciting anymore. What are some of the recommendations you have around that? Mm, Yeah. And I think too, like just to address something you had said earlier about like, there's like new relationship energy when our chemicals stuff and our body stuff is sort of overriding the rest of life. (laughs) And we're like willing to lose sleep or we're willing to be late to that meeting because like, we just want to, we can't get enough of this new person. I think that we've been wrongly like led to believe that that is the sign of a healthy, satisfying relationship is for that new relationship energy to sustain for like two decades. And I just think that's not practical, right? It's like chemically, that's not going to happen. And also like you have to get sleep. You have to go to this meeting on time. Like real life does happen. And I think if you're looking for a long-term partnership that also includes sex, part of that long-term partnership is going to be like sex is going to have to start happening more on purpose. So in terms of like our bodies shifting and changing, again, I think some of that is acceptance, right? Like why are we having, like what role does sex play in our life? Does it have to be all sort of this like body appearance based stuff? And is that coming from us and the inside or is that coming from outside expectations of what we think our body quote unquote should look like? right? Like, I think I've heard this from a lot of people who have kids, your body really changes after if you birth your kids, your body changes. And I think for some people, they're like, Oh, I've been culturally told that that means I'm not sexy anymore. But that might not be the case. Like that might be something that you're taking in and kind of projecting into your relationship rather than being like, well, no, you're super hot and sexy. And also your body birth a whole human being like that's pretty cool. (laughs) 
I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> no, I, and I think there, I love it that that you said that, that like your body created a miracle of life and now we're in a different chapter. And I think I agree with you that part of this expectation comes from the kind of media we're consuming, right? I think even in porn, like girls that it was portrayed in porn in 20s, maybe was closer to what I look like in my 40s, right? (laughs) These changes. And I think it's important to kind of think about what sexy feels like instead of looks like, because when we have this script of particular script that sex is like this narrow thing we're doing with this body that's like not realistic and anything except that is not workable I think that's that's gonna lead us to be in a sexless relationship long term and I think it's interesting that as you are charging the relationship with these sexual exchanges that can even shift the attention from body focus to it's more of a connection with your partner so I think it's it's important for people to think about how can I energize a relationship and as you mentioned accept that this is the body I have and it's it gives me lots of provided me lots of experiences and great great connections and how how can I have experienced great pleasure in the body that my current body, but it is tough, especially yeah. if the dissatisfaction comes from the partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also think that like, if we're thinking about relational safety and how that translates to sex and sexuality, if my partner is sending me the message that they don't find me attractive, I'm not going to like feel super awesome about having sex with them. <laughs> you know, like if my partner's like, ew, your body, I'm going to be like, don't love that. <laughs> so I think like that might be a larger problem that needs addressing. And again, like I think so much of this is like you're saying, like a lot of the mainstream porn that we're given which like a lot of porn is great, but I think you have to have the right porn literacy to be able to find it. And I think most people, especially in their early teen years, if you're just Googling porn topics, you're going to find something mainstream. And a lot of that is older men with younger women. And I think we see this play out in Hollywood as well, right? The older men are seen as like sexy, like silver foxes and older women are kind of discarded. Like there's plenty of examples of like hot older women, but like, it's just not the trope that we are typically given. And so I think that that can be really impactful too. When we just think about like, what have we been told counts as attractive or attracting and why? And I also love like what you're saying, like what, well, how does sex feel? Not like, how does it look? I agree with all of the things that you mentioned. And I think I, I, even in the book, you were talking about porn literacy, right? Because people like there's like two different camps and they say like porn is horrible and all bad. And some people that they, they kind of advocate for it. But I think like any other source of media, we have to make sure that we're finding something that works for us. It's aligned with our values, aligned with what we want to consume and be mindful of a long-term impact of it in our own confidence. I had a client a long time ago, he was in the movie industry. And he was saying that if the angle of the movie is not right, he said, like, who am I? I'm an artist. <laughs> I watch it if the angle is not right. <laughs> so I think whether it's an angle, whether it's the kind of message it has, or the pay that provides the talent, I think it's all important when you kind of choose the type of porn that you, you're consuming. And going back to the porn, I have a sub a subset of people in my practice that they are masturbating but they are in a long-term relationship they just not find they don't have the energy to have sex with a partner they're not interested tell us more about that dynamic mm-hmm. yeah I really like this question because it does come up right if I have an individual client for example 
who is like, you know, I'm just like not that interested in having sex with my partner. I usually like to ask them, okay, like, do you masturbate? How does that go? Because that gives me information because if they're like, nope, I'm just like not interested at all. That's a different conversation than being like, okay, interesting. The context changes your libido and your desire. And so what is it about the context of masturbation that really works for you? And what is it about the context of your partnership that is not working? And again, like when you're masturbating, typically you're alone. You have total control over what you're thinking about or watching or doing. You're using whatever sex toy you want without like the baggage of your partner, like how they feel about it. And so I think that brings up a lot of interesting topics to talk about where it's like, okay, what's going on in your partnership where you feel blocked? Like, do you feel like you can't fantasize about the things that you like? Is the content, the stuff you're doing during sex not working for you? Is there some sort of emotional kind of dynamic that comes up in sex that's like not working? And so I think if people are masturbating, but they're not having partnered sex, you have this perfect sort of like side by side context difference that you can kind of explore further. And I think for a lot of people, again, like safety and eroticism, I ran a book club on Zoom for my book. And a lot of what the people in that book club were talking about, who were all women, were talking about safety, safety as being a huge part of when they feel pleasure, when they feel like they can be in their body, safety to talk, communicate, say what they need, say what they don't want, really played a huge role. So I think in masturbation, like you're safe, right? It's just you. Like no one's no one's there to do or say or think or feel anything. And so it's kind of like, how do we translate that safe kind of alone context to a partnership so that you don't feel like you have to bar yourself from what you actually want? I, I love that you're emphasizing the relational safety because I think many women, especially again, going back to the kind of like women in long-term relationship, I see that they they do things that they're not 100% on board with. They've done it at the beginning of the relationship. So they had tons of dissatisfactory or sexual experiences that they were conflicted about. And then when they are in a longer term relationship, they have children, they just don't no longer are interested to be mm -hmm. in those kind of like not satisfying situations. The other thing that you were talking about was very interesting. This, what, what kind of fantasies you are experiencing using in order to experience psychological arousal? Because at times my clients tell me that I have this particular fantasy or I have like particular kink that I have to kind of like immerse in that fantasy because I cannot talk about it with my partner. And that that causes a challenge with kind of like the willingness and enthusiasm to have partner sex. What kind of recommendation do you have for people who are in those situations? They have a kink and then they, they haven't talked about it with the partner. Yeah, I mean, I think like it's very normal. And I talk about this in the book too. It's very normal to feel scared of asking for what you want. And I think there's a lot of different variables to that. Like one is like, what have you been socially told is acceptable to desire or not, including fantasizing during sex. I know a lot of people who fantasize about different things when they're having sex with their partner and they feel bad about it because they're like, oh, I'm just filling in the gaps and I shouldn't, I should shut that down. And it's like, well, no, your brain is part of your sexual being. So like you don't want to be dissociating or completely checked out of the scenario. But if you're if you're ping ponging around something you think is hot while you're having sex with your partner, I think that's totally fine. But I think that people feel like it's scary to ask for what they want, because if they if they have an idea that their partner might not like that suggestion, 
it feels to them like it threatens their connection, either relationally or sexually. And there's a lot of work you can do in therapy to feel less threatened by having a difference. Like if we are to be together for a long time, like you said, we're going to change, we're going to evolve sexually and otherwise. And if we can't talk about those differences openly, we're going to suffer because we're going to pretend like everything's the same when it isn't. And that's just like not how life works. <laughs> so I think like for me, if I was working with those clients, I would want to talk about why it is asking for what you want is so scary. What are some of the messages that that person has gotten about the thing they want to ask for and why they think it's like bad or negative or risque or like not okay. And like question some of those messages and then talk about their partner's responses. Why might their partner respond a certain way? What can that partner do to like create more openness in their sex life too? Because it's a two-way street with that kind of communication. So I think, you know, it's very normal to feel nervous, but it's also very normal to have desires and like have them be mismatched with your partner. That's very typical, but you're not going to know if you don't talk about it. I, I agree with you. And I think it's really courageous when people are talking about especially more extreme kinks that they have. But I think if in a relationship, it gives you that safety to kind of experiment mm. with different things and being more courageous with your sex life. If you are in a relationship that's, that feels safe to you. The other important thing that's, that's many people are not thinking about, at least the people I see in my practice is like anything else. If they're not interested in this particular activity, it doesn't mean like they, you are bad or they're not interested in a relationship. I think that that's what one of the things you were mentioning, that sometimes people say that because they already have internalized shame about the particular kink. So when the mm -hmm. partner says that, like, you know, I'm not going to do it, I'm not interested, they they feel that the, what they hear is I'm not interested in this and I'm not interested in you. And they get hooked in that spiral shape versus kind of like going through a comparison with food. If my husband says, honey, like, let's have Italian tonight. And it's in, I, I don't, I'm not in the mood for Italian doesn't mean like I'm rejecting this marriage. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the same kind of idea. Right. Yeah. And I think that something about kink in particular is I think that because kink, and I think it's changing, but I think because kink has had so many taboos associated with it, a lot of people don't understand it. So if somebody is interested in a certain kink, I think it can be helpful when you're talking to your partner about your interest in that kink to talk to them about why, why it interests you, right? So if I'm like, I want to be totally submissive, I want you to tell me to do everything, I don't want to have any control, you might be like, wow, that's like super unfeminist, I don't want to control you, like, I feel bad, I don't want to do, I don't want to boss you around, I don't want to be mean, and I'm like, no, I want you to do that, like, I'm asking you to do that, it can be helpful to like, do some reading about what makes a scene or like playing with kink different than your real life. And I think it can also help to be like, look, the reason why I like to do this is because I am so calm, cool, collected and in charge in the rest of my life and the rest of our relationship. For me, this gives me a break where it's like fun and I get to like shut off my decision making and get to just like go with the flow and like I trust you and all these things. So I think that can be more understandable to people like what it psychologically does for you rather than just like, I just want you to hit my butt as hard as you can. <laughs> I like that might be part of the content, but I think the meaning behind it can be more helpful for people to understand why you're interested. I also think that if you share a kink with a partner and they don't want to do that specific thing, sometimes there's like what I like to call the flavor of the kink. 
that you can translate into other acts. So like, let's say I really want to be choked and my partner is like, I don't feel safe doing that. Choking is a very high risk activity, everybody. (laughs) And so my partner is like, I don't feel safe doing that. You could like apply pressure to my sternum or something. And that might give me the same flavor of being like held down or like, catching my breath or something, but it's not the same risk. And so like you, there can be modified things that you all can do together. That isn't necessarily the, like your first pick. I I like that. And it, and it's also kind of like gives this kind of idea is the skill that you can kind of experiment with, because sometimes people feel it's a one shot situation that like, if my partner is saying that let's, let's do this scene, then since my last first and last opportunity, then it needs to be perfect. Right. Mm. But in reality, it's like any other skill like if you're learning cooking it's like you gotta get better as you practice as you're experimenting with different things and it's important to be gracious with the way that you give feedback I know some people are kind of like in this black and white thinking and thinking about like if it's not a particular way it's not how I want it which I understand that might not be as arousing but if you want to you experimenting with this, it's important to be encouraging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think too, I talk to people about this in the context of non-monogamy a lot, where like trust can grow as you have experiences over time. So like if trying something kinky is a big jump for me and my partner as a couple, we're going to have experiences over time and build trust around that thing where it's like, we tried it once, it didn't go super awesome, but totally fine. We have a good attitude about it. We kind of know what needs to be edited for next time. Let's try again. We try again. It goes a little better, but then something, you know, like, I think if we're looking at this, like, this is a joint project. This isn't this like competitive thing where it's like, I'm asking you to do something and you're doing it perfectly the first time. I think that's really set up for us in terms of what we think sexual success looks like. Instead of looking at sexual success, like we are building something together and we're collaborating, we're not going to do it perfectly all the time, but we trust each other in that process. And I think that that's missing from a lot of people's sex lives. And like, to me, if the book just gets people to talk about sex a little bit more with each other, like, great. (laughs) Like I can sleep at night if that's the only thing that happens. (laughs) Because I just think like you're saying, if we're just looking at this as a black and white, like successful or unsuccessful experience, we're really not giving ourselves a lot of leeway to explore. I agree with you. And I think even if you go one step back, kind of like thinking about the couples that they are in this roommate situation, that I, I, I know them, I work with them, that they once they were a lover, now they're just in this awkward roommate, co-parent situation, but they are together. If they want to eroticize a relationship, bring back that sexy, passionate connection, What are some recommendations you have for them? Yeah, I mean, I would want to know, like if this was a couple that I was working with, I would want to know when did it change and kind of like what were the circumstances of that changing? Because it could be like their sex life was never good, in which case I want to know like, why not? You know, But if it was great and then something shifted, I want to know what happened around that shift. Because is there something that has to be repaired around that shift? Is there something that happened that they just like never recovered from? Is it something that happened individually? Because a lot of the time there's sort of like these buried reasons or these buried fuses that sort of lit the path to their sex life sort of going away. But I think too, like Esther Perel talks about how like we desire people the most when we see them doing something that they're good at and we see other people observing them doing it. She probably phrased it better than that, but you get the idea. (laughs) So I think part of reigniting your sex life with your partner 
is actually reigniting your sense of self as being like sexual and desirable and feeling really good about yourself. So I think for some people, and I talk about this in, in the book, like having this like enmeshed kind of codependent lifestyle isn't sexy. Like it's not sexy to feel like you can predict someone's every single thought and move and interest. That's not interesting to us. There's something about new relationship energy where we're always a little bit like, who are you? What might happen? What's our relationship going to be like? Like there's this unknown. And though it's great to have the comfort and stability of like, you live here, I know your schedule, I watched you poop with the door open, (laughs) whatever, that's not like super desirous. So I think having a little more separation can actually build more eroticism. But I think enmeshed couples are really scared of that separation. So they have to work on how to build that scaffolding for themselves. Well, public service announcement, close the door of the bathroom. But I agree with you. I think kind of like re-energizing your, uh, your own erotic self and your own sense of self can bring so much excitement and sexiness into the relationship. But as you mentioned, it's easier said than done. Sometimes it requires some therapy and kind of like some support with kind of like going through this process of individuation. Well, I know we're toward the end of our time and even with your book, kind of as a sex therapist, I got lots of good tips and uh, tools on kind of how we can, how I can shift things for myself and for my clients. So if people are interested in getting the book, learning more about you, what are some of the places that they can get a hold of those information? Yeah. And thank you for saying that because I also feel like sometimes writing the book for me was like cheat codes for myself. I'm like, this is stuff I use in my practice a lot. And now I have it in one place. (laughs) So I could like use these worksheets and do these things. So the book is called Hot and Unbothered, How to Think About, Talk About, and Have the Sex You Really Want. It just came out in August, and it's available anywhere you buy books. And my website is yanatalonhicks.com. You can get the book there too. And then my social media, I'm usually on Instagram, and that's at the underscore V spot, V like vagina. And yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) But the link for the information, the book will be in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on this show and being so generous with your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful. Uh, Definitely check the yes, no, maybe list on Yana's book, Hot and Unbothered. I also have a list of 100 different ways that you can spice up your relationship. And it is free. You can download it just below this audio, wherever you're listening to this audio. I also encourage you to kind of get curious if you are hearing about kinky thing or you're from the list that you're looking at, you find things that you don't know how to do it. We have more than 300 episodes on everything related to sexual health. I interviewed hundreds of my skilled friends, colleagues, and sex educators. So you can listen to those episodes. And if you feel the content and the person is a right fit for what you're looking for, you can contact them because I personally choose the guests that I trust and I hear great things about them. And that's why they're on my show. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I cannot wait until next week. Same time, same place. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. 
Please be advised that the information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.